right, please join me in standing for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you so much for coming. Those of you who made it in person, brave the snow. I drove my minivan with front-wheel drive only, so it was a blast. Like, that's why they have first and second gear, just for everyone who does not know that. That's why they're helpful. Uh, those of you who are online, one of the things you can do, make sure you give a thumbs up so that we know that you're following. But also, I am going to encourage you to basically live tweet the uh, entire thing in the comments if you want on sermon time. Uh, and, and you can respond and come back and forth a lot like our brothers and sisters do in the black church. Okay? And it helps the pastor, the preacher, preach much better when you respond in that way. So make sure you do that. Amen. Thank you. Someone is practicing that in person. Boom. Also, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, this is uh, celebrating the life of the third century saints uh, who would marry people even though uh, that he was... Uh, uh, be, be persecuted. He ended up dying, uh, clubbed and beheaded on the outside of the gate. Yeah, and some of the eyeballs are like, wait, no one tells me that. Thanks, Hallmark. All right. For, for all we know, he probably died single, which means this. Take that, Hallmark. That overworked 20-year-old does not need no flannel-wearing man. All right. Boom. Take it. Valentine's Day is awesome. But you chose that you can live a satisfied, fulfilled life without romance. But, so what are we doing here? Uh, grace and peace exists, and one of our values is discipleship with Monday in mind. It means our worship, city groups, cohort groups, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, all those and all our future mentoring relationships like we would want to do, like triads and different things like that, exist to prepare people for life in the world. It means 
that we believe that the gospel does have something to say about racism. It does have something to say about our culture. It does have something to say about politics. It does have something to say about your crazy family. All right? Sin doesn't stop on Sunday, and neither does God's grace. And so, neither should discipleship. That means we want to connect theology and get it from our head deeply into our hearts and out into our hands in every broken place so that they would experience the healing power of the gospel. When we were last in Jonah, as we're continuing this sermon series, uh, Jonah, he was being vomited out of a big fish which my kids love. They just imagine it and draw conclusions of what it must have looked like and smelt like. But in this fish, Jonah had a prayer where Jonah begins to show that the gospel was actually getting from his head and into his heart. And it reveals that the heart of Christianity is summed up with the line, salvation belongs to the Lord. Meaning that like creation, from beginning to end, it is all the work of the Lord. Just like creation is passive, when it is brought forth out of nothing, so is redemption. It is all of God's work. It is all of grace. And so here, Jonah now has a second chance as we open up the second panel, the second part of the book of Jonah. It shows us that while our sin goes deep, God's grace is deeper still. This past week, my Twitter feed, though, was dominated by the revelation of sexual misconduct by the late apologist Ravi Zacharias. This is so troubling because he influenced so many people. And God used him in many people's lives. And for us, it's been hard to reconcile God's work through his life, and yet... All his horrible and awful sins. If Here, let me put it this way, as my take on it. If you're on the board of a ministry and one of the leaders owns a massage parlor, something is wrong. And you need to investigate that now. The report goes to show that Ravi was a calculated predator who covered up his misgivings with charismatic eloquence, intelligent defenses for the faith, and winsome arguments for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that kept many people from believing that he could ever have done anything wrong. His eloquence and intelligence paired with the Bible were just a front to cover up all his weaknesses. It was a veil. And it's understandable in many ways because that's the way our society runs. We all live with great facades, great exteriors. We live in a merit-based world that has no room for weakness. In the same way the ministry can't imagine that he would ever be able to do this, that he would never ever have any weaknesses, what they did was they relied on his strengths in order to cover things up. Well, of course he couldn't be that bad. He talks about Jesus. Do you know how many times, even in the past four years, I have seen great preachers be able to preach the gospel, but yet live the life of performance and moralism at home? 
They preach grace from the pulpit. And they do it better than anybody else. But yet they are abusing their staff. It happens because in our moralistic champion or meritocracies that we live in, it champions those who are strong and without moral failure. Think about how it works in purity culture. Hold out. Be pure. Wait till you're married. And then you'll have the best marriage ever. If not, you're on God's frontage road forever. Like, what in the world is that? That's called moralism. And it allows people to hide in the dark. Hide in shame. Whereas true Christianity says that we lean into our weaknesses. And where we are weak, we see that God is strong. And so in the end, because God is sovereign, He is the one who gets the glory. Because it is not about my kingdom come, but His kingdom come. Therefore, we can confess that I ain't got it all together. And hopefully, if you've been sitting in here long enough, you know Vince is messed up. But God loves mess, messed up people. Someone's over there going, what? Just stop mocking me. I'm going, come on. But this is where we're at. We live in a world where moralism will lead to shame when we fail. And shame will lead to self-loathing. And self-loathing will lead to hiding. And in this environment, this is where sin grows, was in the hiding. Robbie lived two different lives. But his downfall was what? It was his strengths that allowed him to hide his sin. Instead, we need to reverse it in the Christian life. And Jonah is a book that tries to confront our weakness, our sin, bring it out into the light. And in that, knowing God's grace for weak people, for sinners like you and me, God then will shine through and His glory be made known because where we are weak, He is strong. We couldn't see it. And they couldn't see it because they were blinded by Ravi's strength. Jonah chapter 3 is a demonstration of God's strength working through weakness for His glory. Here, God is working to get the gospel from Jonah's head. He knows God is sovereign. He prayed in his prayer in Jonah 2, saying, You are the one who threw me into the deep. But now God is once again trying to get it into his heart. Because God is sovereign then, our greatest strengths may be our greatest liabilities. Because God rules and reigns and controls his world. Our creaturely strengths generally are our greatest weaknesses because it allows us to hide out behind them. And instead, our weaknesses, though, in God's sovereignty, are there to reveal His strength. Those who have gotten God's grace in the heart will be those who extend grace to others. Only by knowing your sin, your weakness, your ineptitude, Will you be able to meet others with grace instead of condemnation, instead of contempt, instead of hatred? You see, because God is sovereign in His saving mercy, 
God saves messed up people to send them to messed up people. Because God is sovereign in his saving mercy, God saves messed up people to send them to messed up people. So God saves messed up people. Our text today opens the second panel of the book. Here the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah and it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Why? Because Jonah was a mess up and decided to run away. Praise God for second times, right? Praise God for the third times. Praise God for the fourth times that he's come back into your life and he tries to wake you up and shake you from your sin. To try and let you know that he loves you more than anything else can possibly love you in this world. This time Jonah, he arises, he goes to Nineveh. But you can tell that Jonah still hasn't really gotten the fullness of God's grace into his heart. Why? Because then he proceeds to preach what must have been the worst sermon ever. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Wow. Sometimes you're probably praising the shortness of it. And you're probably like, the brevity was great. That is excellent. I never knew someone could preach such a concise message so beautifully and wonderfully. Is it time for lunch now? That's generally the way we think of it. But here, Jonah saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And instead of people asking, uh, what did you mean? Can you explain it a little more, Pastor? They decide to actually repent, which is wild. Which goes to show you this thing. No matter how eloquent and intelligent and great the pastor may be and the message he may be saying, the effectiveness of it from getting the gospel from your head to your heart does not depend on the pastor. It depends on the Holy Spirit applying it to your heart. It depends on God. So here we get the worst sermon ever. In a lot of ways, his obedience to God is just a veil for contempt. God, through his sovereignty, is able to take our feeble efforts and make them effective. He can take our stick figure drawings and make them into a masterpiece. I need that every Sunday, just by the by. Did, God, did Jonah deserve a second chance? Did Jonah deserve any chance? No. It's God and his grace that initiates and finishes, that saves messed up people. Jonah knows that he's messed up and that his obedience is just a cover-up for his hate. We know this because in the next chapter, what happens? Jonah hangs out at the edge of town wondering what's going to happen to them, which is code word in the Hebrew for, I really hope God nukes these dirty little He's all like, they're sinners, nuke them, God. That's the way Jonah feels about that. Why? Because he doesn't understand yet deeply how messed up he is. It's that allows him to stand there and condemn them. He doesn't deserve it. It is messed up people that God works through. God chooses messed up people to bring about his kingdom come and his will be done. And this is good news. If God wasn't sovereign and the kingdom was ultimately up to the efforts of messed up people, what kind of kingdom do you think we would get? Messed up. Like you and me if we were honest. 
man, my kingdom would be jacked up for a lot of people. And there would not be much justice. But the good news is that God is sovereign. And that he uses jacked up instruments to build his kingdom. Ephesians 2.10 says that we, God's people, the church, are his poema. Which means masterpiece. His poem. That's how God sees messed up people and how he works through them. How is this good news? God works through mess ups, isn't this? That is good news. Why? Because you and I know when we look in the mirror and we look at the record of our history that we are messed up. And we cannot hide anymore behind our strengths. We, all like Jonah, have the seeds of disobedience in our sin and sin in our hearts that is ready to sprout in the fertile soil. You know, some of us, then we just, what we do is we kind of go into false humility. What we do is we like to beat everyone to the chase whenever we critique ourselves, right? <laughs> like, I'm, you know, I know they're coming with critiques, so let me get the list out of critiques that I've got for myself, and we just kind of list them out. They may be true, but what we're doing is we're hiding behind our ability to be so self-aware that we are, you know, I don't need your critiques because I'm so self-aware. That's false humility. You see, rather, God gives us true humility in order that his strength would shine through our failures. And so it allows us to be open-chested people that say, what you got? You ever get feedback from a boss? It is scary, isn't it? The first time that ever happened to me, I thought I was going to drop dead from anxiety. But until I understood that this is God's method for building his kingdom, sometimes this feedback, if he isn't there to try and stab me, but rather use it like a scalpel for surgery to help heal me, I can understand that feedback, especially from a loving spouse, a caring child, a neighbor, is only to bring about his kingdom, then I am free to not head him off at the past with all my own self-critiques. You see, the mature Christian, then, is one who will readily admit his need in humility, knowing that they are not the Christ. The mature Christian confesses sin. The mature Christian parent asks their children for forgiveness. The mature Christian child asks for help when things don't make sense. The mature Christian single looks for a community of friends to keep their eyes on Jesus, knowing that it is much easier to keep my eyes on my bumble lap. The mature Christian in the workplace pleads with God to save their messed up workplace because they are not the ones to give the expert feedback and advice to make their workplace the kingdom on earth. The mature Christian man readily solicits feedback from friends. The mature Christian woman spends time learning theology. The mature Christian readily gives and sacrifices in service. Why? Because we know we are weak. And the mature Christian doesn't rely on strengths to cover up their weaknesses, but knows their weaknesses is the strength of God being revealed. After the Apostle Paul begs and pleads with God to take away the thorn in his flesh, Paul says thus, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Which, this is just a side note here, okay? If Paul, the Apostle, pleads and begs and prays, 
And God doesn't answer him. Does that make you think that maybe God doesn't, you know, owe you anything in your prayers? Okay? Anyway, so Paul then says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. So guess what, Paul? Lean into that thorn in the flesh. Therefore, Paul says, I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God uses the weak to shame the wise. Jesus came to save the sick because the healthy don't need a doctor. Jonah's second chance is proof that God saves messed up people. And you can say, I am messed up. He is pleased to use messed up people for his, pro for his purposes. How do I know this? I've read the Bible. Okay? Noah, he's a drunk. Abraham, he's a moon-worshipping pagan. Isaac suffers from favoritism. Jacob dupes his brother and father in order to get the blessing. Moses is a non-eloquent murderer. Rahab, at worst, is a prostitute and at best is a tavern owner and pimp. Gideon is a coward who will also be a greedy wannabe king. David is sexually promiscuous and a murderer. Solomon, how did, how did Solomon even have time to put pants on? That's just going to leave that there. <laughs> Jeremiah is a weepy emo kid. Yes. Amos is a stinky, uneducated shepherd. Jonah is a runaway. Mary is an unwed mother. You start to get the point that disciples are a bunch of cowards who abandon Jesus and are thick. They never understand nothing. Okay? Paul is a Pharisee and a murderer. And all are transformed and saved by Jesus, a poor carpenter from Podunk, backwater Nazareth. And God uses them all. Amen. His power is made perfect in our weakness. God uses messed up people. And so he can use you for his purposes in your homes, with your family, at work, in school, in your neighborhoods, in your city. All to call people to repent. As you turn and repent and confess your need and your weakness. Turn away, you can call others to turn away from evil ways and to the salvation of God. Because salvation belongs to Him and not our feeble strength. Our strengths are only liabilities in the hands of our Savior. And our weaknesses are great instruments for healing. Our failures then are used by God to be the brush strokes that highlight His power. I mean, and many of us, we're probably looking around and saying, yeah, second chances are for them, but... It, does he really know me? Oh yeah, he knows you. Your sin runs deep. Your weakness is great. But it is no match. No match. For the steadfast love of the Lord. And he will use you to bring about his kingdom. It means your sacrificial giving, whether large or small, will make a difference in this world. It means your time of service, though insignificant and feeble, will be useful to those in this city. It means your words about faith in the workplace, no matter how confusing or inarticulate, are used by the sovereign God for his purpose. Why? Because God is sovereign and gets the last word on your life. 
and not your sins and failures. So you could readily confess your sins and failures. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you're messing up. Maybe you are the mess up. God doesn't see you that way. In Jesus, you're forgiven. You're righteous. You're his masterpiece. In his hands, though you are weak, you wield his strength. So it comes down to not it, so it comes down to whose hands are you in? In your own strength, you hold on to your own life and you find that you're weak, but in weakness, relying on his strength, you find that you are strong. Whose hands are you in? A paintbrush in my hands will get paint on the floor and some zombie-looking people on canvas. A paintbrush in the hands of Van Gogh will paint the starry night. A pen in my hands will get my wife some real broke, non-rhyming Valentine's Day poetry. She'll smile and be like, you're so cute. But a pen in the hands of William Shakespeare will get 39 plays, 154 sonnets, two narrative poems, and romantic settings for all framing literature for centuries. A football in my hands will mean a broken window in my house. A football in the hands of Tom Brady will mean seven championships with two teams over 20 years. Wood and nails in my hands would mean a crooked birdhouse for my wife. Wood and nails in the hands of Jesus will mean salvation for all. Your life in your hands will mean a never-ending cycle of performance, relying on your strengths, never really truly being vulnerable and known. But your life in Jesus' hands means success in his kingdom being integrated into his masterpiece. So the way to greatness in Christianity is trusting the sovereign God of second chances and not your gifts and talents and strengths. The way up is the way down. The way to ascend the throne is to be hung on the cross. Therefore, you could be honest about your weakness because it isn't about you. Because God is sovereign, and God works with messed up people. And messed up people are sent to messed up people. The city of Nineveh was called Great. In Hebrew, it says it was great even to God, meaning that the city was a center for economy, for culture, for civics, for safety. That means they had the coolest artists and the best hip-hop uh, battles ever. Okay? Their hype men were better than, our, than, than Israel's uh, uh, MCs. That's the way it was going. Okay? It was huge. Meaning it, it, it said that it took three days to get through it. And so Jonah went about a day and a half, got to the center of the city, and started telling his wonderful sermon. Forty days! And then it will be overthrown. And people will be like, I... We need to change. Which is like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, and it isn't supposed to make sense. It's supposed to highlight the saving mercy of God. How are these people suddenly changing their ways after years of being the worst? Notice, though, that here in this metropolitan area, what does God do when he describes this place? It is filled with these image bearers. Notice that he first mentions the greatness of the city before its sin. This is very important here. To God, sin was corrupting the beauty and goodness of this place. 
It is as Francis Schaeffer, the apologist, once said, we are all glorious ruins, meaning that humans and cultures still reflect the goodness of God, but our sin, like rust, comes and obscures and twists God's goodness. God affirms them, then he critiques. There is something redeemable there then, because the people are made in his image. Their beauty was corrupted by sin. But notice God mentions the greatness first. He affirms, then he critiques. Their, their evil came up, it says in chapter 1. It means that the course of their communal sin, the ways that they were relating to one another, was taking them down a course of no return. So they call for a fast, the greatest to the least, putting away their violence, the things that were destroying their society. You see, the way sin works is that it has an inevitability to it. It has a half-life and a decay. Like radiation, it will go out and destroy other things around it. And the way communities and your sin works is that it is radioactive and it will infect the person next to you. And this entire city is about to take an entire region down. Unless they change course. From the king to children, everyone was to take stock of their lives when they came to this fast. The king, who was the archetype and the figurehead of the city, he calls the fast. He takes off all his comforts, puts on sackcloth. If you, you know, like kind of like burlap sacks, basically, that, that coffee comes in. Imagine wearing that kind of scratchy, okay? It's not going to be comfortable. And in his discomfort, he's supposed to call out for forgiveness. Which, you know, this irritation is supposed to irritate him and realize how irritating his sin is. He sits in ashes, which reminds him that he is only dust, and he's given to the sovereign mercy of God. He says they must turn away from violence in the city, in its corruption, it is violent. And it must turn away and repent. We know sin has a disintegrating ability. It takes away soundness. It makes you feel uneven. You know when there's unrepentant sin in your life? You know the way that feels? You always feel scared. You're about to be found out. Here, it's like the check engine light has come on for Nineveh. And you can't ignore it. What happens when you ignore the check engine light of sin in your life? It does not go well. I know some of you have ignored the check engine light. You want to know why? Because you are like me. Most of y'all be millennials, okay? And what do we do? I like to put a little bit of electrical tape right on top of that check engine light like it doesn't exist, all right? That's the way I do it. Like it doesn't exist, vapor lock. Yeah, whatever that's supposed to mean. Who cares? Don't need to get that fixed. No, it's going to be a tragedy sometime. If you know me, my check engine light has been on for the past four years, okay? I have not changed it. But we can't do that with our sin, can we? It's going to be catastrophic. You see, they stopped their ways to great shock of Jonah. He's like, what in the world happened? Let me take a little break here for a second, though. 
You see, a lot of us see this, and we like to think that, oh, that's for the world out there. Those are, those are the Ninevites right over there. But in a certain way, God is trying to say to Israel through this prophet, y'all need to be like the Ninevites. Let me put it this way. In our society, America is more like Nineveh. It's more like Nineveh than Jerusalem, idealistic and the way it's supposed to be. You see, to confuse the two is to make the mistake of Christian nationalism. To read the Bible and conflate America with God's people in the text is to make a grave reading error. The kingdom of God cannot and must not be confused with any nation on the earth, especially our own. That is very important for us to know. America is not the Israel of the Old Testament. That isn't the way it works. And we can't read it like that. America is more like Nineveh called to repent. But they... Where the Ninevites changed their ways and God relented. Did they have saving repentance? I mean, even the king repented, right? But it doesn't say they turned to the Lord. It just says that they stopped their violence. And that was the point to show how gracious God is and how merciful he is. That even in the stopping of the violence, God will relent. He'll turn. As soon as they turn, he turned. It says, the point the narrator is emphasizing is God's ready mercy is for messed up people. The preaching of the prophets isn't so much what is going to happen, but rather it is foretelling, telling the audience that what might happen if you continue to go down the path of destruction. So wait, does God repent and change his mind? Well, God isn't a human, but this is the human language that is attributed to him. This is the way we perceive his actions. And our repentance, though, is somewhat of a, measure, a mirror of his. So, can we change God's mind through our prayer? Sure. I guess that's the language we can use. But God is merciful even to messed up people. Meaning because he is sovereign and his will is ultimate, then our prayers matter. If he wasn't sovereign, and he wasn't ultimate, then where do our prayers go to? Some guy who might help us out? Or might be able to be gracious to us? No. Our prayers go to a sovereign God who can actually change things and do things in his creation. What does this matter to Jonah's mission, Israel's mission, and ultimately our mission in God's world, in this mission to the world? Until we get God is merciful to us. And to some measure, the way he's merciful to the Ninevites, we will never be gracious to other people. Until we get the gospel from the head into the heart, until we you, you realize our weaknesses, our efforts in the kingdom will only point to our strengths Instead of God's strength. So, we can't live out our mission if we think that we're better than all the other people. We cannot live out God's mission until we know that we are one of the sinners. 
We won't have the capacity of compassion to go where Jesus leads. If God is merciful to his people, to people who are even not his own, we need to realize how merciful he is to us who we die for. We can't live out God's mission for the church to be a light by segregating away from the culture. No, we have to contextualize. We have to go into the culture. We must understand the temptations to run away, but we need to move in. We have to see the greatness of the city, mourn the things that are corrupting the city, and seek its healing in the gospel. Philippians 2, Paul gives us the paradigm for mission in the work of Jesus, saying if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in, in, in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy of, being like the sa- of having the same mind, having the same love, being in the full accord of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the, same, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The heart of Christian mission, in the heart of your life, a messed up person, called and loved by God, means accommodating and condescending like God, and contextualizing the love of God, taking the God who takes our place. Therefore, mission is lived out by confessing that we are messed up sinners, and declaring that God loves messed up sinners, because he became like a messed up sinner, to save messed up sinners, so we can go to messed up sinners. Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I am chief. He also says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says even further, imitating the condescending grace of God, he says this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not I myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. This is difficult. You will fail. And you are weak. And you will sin. But God loves sinners. He came to die for them. And when we get that at the heart, 
we will engage our neighbor, and we will be gracious to them. It's a lot like walking in a minefield this life, or crossing a river, one small step and you'll be maimed or swept away. But Jesus is the one who was truly swept away, and his body was maimed. His body broke so the broken may be healed. He was shamed to be ashamed so that the shame may become courageous. He was made guilty so the guilty may be free. He poured out his life so those dying may have life to the full. And Jesus shows us that you must become like what you want to save. He became weak to save the weak. Jesus came for messed up people like you and me to send us to messed up people. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you that the heart of the gospel is not that we perform, but the heart of the gospel is that we confess and that God's strength in Jesus Christ is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, this week, help us to get that at the heart. That we may proclaim your excellencies and strengths through our weakness. That we may be a balm in healing for those who are weak around us. Lord, help us to see in Jesus the true sign of Jonah, that it is through weakness and going down that we may go up. But the way to the throne is through the cross. Christ name.